Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts of today, Dean and Oli. We are solutions architects based in Asia Pacific and help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Welcome to episode 25 of the AWS Tech Chat. We are again here in Vegas together with Dean for some internal conferences we had. And guess what? Weren't we just here not too long ago for our fifth AWS reInvent conference here in December, our annual customer and partner focused conference? Dean, can you tell us a little bit about your experience and feedback from attendees you had last month there? Yeah, sure, uh, Ollie. It's uh, great to uh, see you here in, in Vegas, sitting in your uh, hotel room, uh, recording this uh, tech chat, looking over Las Vegas once again, yeah. like, you, like you mentioned. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, we were here uh, just only a couple of months ago for um, our reInvent uh, conference. It was actually my uh, fourth time at reInvent, and, nice. and every year it's getting uh, bigger and bigger, uh, just in terms of uh, the attendees, of course, with our uh, customers and partners, as well as the content uh, that uh, we make available throughout the, uh, the, the conference. Uh, you know, being being here uh, last year, or well, the end of last year, uh, was a great learning experience for myself. Uh, uh, listening to some of the new announcements, new services, which uh, we'll touch base on in this uh, tech chat, uh, but also then meeting with a lot of our customers mm-hmm. and, and looking at our partner solutions as well uh, through the partner expo or the partner pavilion. Uh, it was really good to actually see just a wide variety of uh, solutions and uh, applications available out there for our customers and partners. Absolutely, and we got to party with DJ Snake. We did indeed, yes, it was a great (laughs) night, a good good way to close off the week. Absolutely, and I always think it's uh, it's such a fun and informative experience, reInvent, really learning so many different things, diving deep into the technical details of some of our services, hearing from our customers on how they build interesting applications on top of us, Uh, always a great experience. And uh, by the way, to our listeners, actually, if you're interested in reInvent and you couldn't make it this year, we actually already published a schedule uh, for 2018 this year again, which would be on the 26th to the 30th November, again held here in Las Vegas. So it would be great to see you here. And I'm sure it'll be an awesome learning experience like it was for us and all the attendees uh, in the previous year. Right, Dean? Yeah, absolutely. I've actually already told my wife that I might have to go again, but uh, I just need to convince her it's actually for the conference and not for the fact that it's in uh, in Vegas. Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and actually, I probably wanted to add, uh, you know, for those of you who uh, may not be able to make it to to Vegas, or maybe even those that uh, that do for the reInvent conference. There's obviously so much uh, going on. Um, uh, we do actually publish the uh, the sessions um, on our YouTube that channel, as well as our SlideShare um, uh, uh, channel as well. So uh, listeners can actually go and and view a lot of the content, a lot of the sessions that are delivered uh, from past reInvent sessions. Absolutely, yeah, that that's very true. I think uh, there's so much rich value in all these YouTube videos that are now online. So I encourage you all to have a look at those. Um, so, Dean, there were quite a bunch of new service and feature announcement at the end of last year, and especially also because of reInvent. Um, what's your meta- method of keeping up to date with all of that? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked, uh, Ollie. Uh, you know, as a as a technologist, uh, some of the key qualities that you really need is is make sure that you're not too distracted by all the mm. shiny objects. You know, otherwise you will just uh, drown in all the information and and technology. Uh, also, um, I believe that you you need to know what to focus on, either by your own self interest or, mm. for example, I love hearing about ways to automate operations and uh, development. Um, and then also make sure you can consume information in an effective way. Mm-hmm. Getting hands-on uh, is a must, but also viewing information in different ways, such as podcasts like this, yep. interactive online sessions like our webinars, or traditional viewing of materials like our YouTube uh, videos. Yeah. Now, uh, specifically to AWS technology, the three, the three main things I actually do is, number one, I follow the AWS blogs at uh, AWS amazon.com slash blog slash AWS. Uh, I ob- obviously have uh, RSS feeds that I mm-hmm. um, that, that I monitor, and I've actually um, installed the new AWS Alexa skill to my Amazon Echo. So actually, each morning I can wake up, and one of the first things I do is ask my Echo device to tell me what's new with <laughs> AWS. That's nice. <laughs> 
Of course, um, you know, listening to uh, our colleagues such as uh, Simon Alicia and and on his um, AWS podcast, um, which he makes available on multiple services, including mm-hmm. RSS, Stitcher, Overcast, uh, and iTunes. It's really a good way to get a fifteen to twenty minute recap yep. of a lot of the recent announcements. And Simon does an excellent job putting these announcements into the context of real world application and solving customer problems and business cha- challenges. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, no, really, I mean, uh, so many great ways to stay uh, to stay on track what's going on. And uh, yeah, I myself have, for example, this little uh, Google Chrome extension that just pulls all the OSS fits from all the blogs and, mm. and gives me these little clickable right. links. Uh, and it's, it's great. I mean, the, the amount and pace of innovation we have, the rate that we launch services, uh, we got to find that tooling to make to make that work for us. Yeah. So in that regard, a lot of announcements from reInvent uh, around machine learning, uh, and, and there was a theme on the keynotes around that, but also on IoT and analytics. Why were these domains such a focus team? So Ollie, I'm sure you've heard about the digital economy and mm-hmm. digital transformation. Um, in fact, IDC has indicated that over the next three years, uh, digital transformation will reshape the entire macro economy as the majority of global business revenue centers around digital or digitally enhanced products and services. In fact, by 2019, IDC predicts that third platform technologies and services will drive nearly 75% of IT spending, growing at twice the rate of the total IT market. Well- Wait, wait, Daddy. I mean, I know digital economy and I know digital transformation is referring to, but what is this third platform you're speaking about? It sounds something like a sci-fi movie. <laughs> yeah, good, uh, good, good question. I probably should uh, clarify what I mean by the uh, uh, third, uh, third platform. It's actually in reference to technologies that act uh, as enablers to allow businesses to accelerate their digital uh, transformation. Gotcha. Uh, if you think about it, first platform was really the mainframe, and mm. in its day, it fundamentally changed the computing platform for businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we had the second platform, which is the client service system, which began in the mid-1980s with PCs tapping into mm-hmm. mainframe databases and applications. Now, in the early 2010s, uh, until now, we have the third platform, uh, which at the core are the four pillar technology areas of uh, big data and analytics, Mm -hmm. cloud, mobile, and social. That makes sense. Now, these four technologies are are important. Uh, They're foundational elements in a digital enterprise that can disrupt the market and successfully adapt to a new digital transformation-focused economy. They are... They also now set the foundation for innovation accelerators, Mm -hmm. uh, which is actually the ability for organizations to create digitally enhanced products, services, and experiences in response to evolving customer expectations. Uh, Areas like artificial intelligence, IoT, uh, augmented and virtual reality, robotics, are really examples of these types of accelerators. And so this is why we saw a heavy focus of areas of artificial intelligence, IoT, and analytics at reInvent last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are the technology areas which are causing the most disruption across industries and are the areas that are high in demand from our customers wanting easy access in terms terms of cost and management of these types of technologies. Um, And as you know, Ollie, about 95% of all new services and features we launch are directly based on customer uh, feedback. Uh, it was actually only a few years ago where infrastructure required to support uh, domains like IoT and artificial intelligence were really at, out of reach of the average uh, company. Mm-hmm. Uh, that barrier has been completely removed today by the cloud. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and, and look, that's very interesting indeed, and you know, definitely something we're seeing with our customers and some of the key areas of interest that that's really having a lot of traction lately. And it's a great indicator where this type of analytical reporting is really reflecting reality. But look, that's all great. Let's get into what our listeners have really come here for, the AWS Tech Talk. After all, this is an AWS Tech (laughs) podcast, right? Let's do it. (laughs) Okay, so uh, here's uh, an easy one to get us started, Ollie. Um, We started a new year. How many AWS regions have we launched to date? And what about what we've announced? Well, Okay, to date we now have 18 regions which are online and available to our customers. And in fact, two of those 18 regions were just announced and launched in December. Our second China-based region, which is Ningxia, and also our Paris region in France. And now in 2018, we'll see additional regions become part of our global infrastructure, including our first region, 
for the Middle East, which is in Bahrain, and also our new region in Asia, which is in Hong Kong, of mm -hmm. course, right? And the second Gulf Cloud region in the US. Yeah, really looking forward to our uh, Hong Kong uh, launch. Uh, Absolutely, of yeah. <laughs> and so are our customers. Um, yeah, so uh, as you can see, uh, we're, we're really giving customers choice of where to deploy their applications mm -hmm. and actually store their content. It should actually be mentioned that at all times, the customer owns their data and yep. they choose how it is stored, whether it's encrypted, for example, um, who has access, and yes, even where it can be stored geographically uh, by leveraging regions. Um, an AWS region is a physical geographic location within a single country's border mm -hmm. where we have a cluster of data centers. Uh, each region, as I'm sure our listeners know, is made up of isolated locations known as availability zones. Yeah, and I really love those availability zones because they allow us to build these applications uh, that just remain online even if an entire data center suddenly goes down, right? Mm -hmm. Architecting for failure. And look, it's really awesome to have all these 18 regions available to our customers. But, you know, what about actually interconnectivity between these regions you know like what if a customer chooses to leverage multiple regions for example or you know maybe even their data centers right we need to connect that together and the application applications need to chat even across region across their data centers etc so then how can customers effectively interconnect those AWS regions uh, while it's actually minimizing that overhead to, to do so yeah, that's actually a good question. Um, you know, as we expand the number of regions, like you said, you know, and we have customers that are um, embracing the ability to deploy across these multiple regions, we need mm -hmm. to, an easy way to provide our customers to actually have that connectivity, like you spoke about, between uh, the resources they're using uh, across different regions. So a few po podcasts ago, we spoke uh, about a really cool feature release for Direct Connect. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who may have, may have missed it, uh, Direct Connect uh, makes it easy for customers to establish a dedicated network connection from their premises to AWS. Uh, using AWS uh, Direct Connect, customers can establish private connectivity between AWS and their data center, their office, or a co-location environment. Mm -hmm. uh, in many cases, it can even reduce your network costs, uh, increase your bandwidth throughput, and provide a more consistent network experience than internet-based uh, connections. Well, the cool new feature that we, uh, that we actually announced and launched was the ability uh, to allow customers to connect to any of the participating VPCs in any region from any Direct Connect nice. location. Uh, this further reduced their costs for making use of AWS services on a cross-region uh, basis. Nice. Right. Nice. Um, furthermore, this connectivity was extended to AWS uh, region public endpoints. And so what that meant is it provided the ability for customers to leverage their single Direct Connect link to access the public endpoints from other AWS regions, all which leverages our global network uh, backbone. Mm -hmm. Now, these features allowed our Direct Connect customers to more securely, reliably, and optimally design, architect, and deploy multi-region uh, configurations. Now, we spoke about why customers would be interested in leveraging these uh, AWS regions in different uh, geographies earlier. Yeah. But what about those customers who didn't necessarily use or need Direct Connect, but they still wanted that ability to have that uh, right. inter-VPC connectivity between uh, VPCs in different regions? Yeah. yeah. Well, really happy to, to say it was, um, um, or, or rather see um, us announce at reInvent that Amazon EC2 now actually allows peering relationships to be established between VPCs, our virtual private clouds, yeah. across different AWS regions. Nice. Uh, Interregion VPC allows VPC resources like EC2 instances or relational database service instances, RDS uh, instances, and even your Lambda functions uh, running in different AWS regions to communicate with each other using private IP addresses without actually requiring uh, internet gateways, VPN connections, or separate physical hardware. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, furthermore, the connectivity is encrypted and no single point of failure or, ba uh, or bandwidth bottleneck. Uh, Traffic using inter-region VPC peering always stays on the global AWS backbone. It never tra traverses the public internet and thereby reduces those threat uh, vectors. Yeah, very important. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this allows the customer to focus on architecting the applications for cross-region deployments and not have to worry about the underlying network connectivity requirements. Mm -hmm. Now, again, uh, Ollie, this is really a great example of removing that 
undifferentiated heavy lifting from our customers who can really focus on delivering value and innovating quickly for their own customers. Uh, absolutely. And you know, I really like that we always listen to our customers' feedback. I remember uh, helping customers deploying those uh, you know, cross-region uh, cross VPCs and mm, you build up yeah. the VPNs and it was, uh, it was a little bit painful, absolutely. right? And now it's just with a few clicks of a button, uh, we make that pain all go away. So really, really great. So uh, Dean, I know we can go to all those new services and features that we recently announced, but I don't think we have the time for all those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And there were just 70 new services and features now alone at reInvent. So um, we already heard some of the options that our customers now can have uh, to, to keep themselves up to date, right? Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, these blocks and so on. So that's, that's great. Um, but how about we take a little bit of a, a deeper dive and focus on some of these use cases and customer challenges that, we, that we're having and how we're trying to address those challenges and meet those customer requirements with our technology? Yeah, maybe uh, we'll talk, uh, let's talk uh, databases. Um, uh, Or really the ability to securely store information that is easily accessible in a very performance and scalable way while still being cost effective, um, which is really, and and databases being a fundamental requirement in most application architectures, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I work with many customers who have this requirement, but even down to the application level, the data store requirements could actually be different. Uh, there are so many choices out there. So, Ollie, perhaps you can take us through some use cases of where certain mm-hmm. databases are recommended more so than others, and maybe some customers that are taking advantage of uh, these database technologies that is most suited to their needs. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you, you know, we, we, we all probably know these you know, you know, relational databases like MySQL, or MariaDB, etc., pretty well. But there are also a few other types that, that I wanted to focus on uh, in, in today's episode. And, and the first part is really NoSQL databases, right? I think probably most of our listeners have heard of NoSQL databases, but the, it's really the concept of having those more simple, horizontally scalable databases that allow us to provide that quick lookup of values and documents uh, with a finer control over availability. And if you look at the data structures used in NoSQL databases, they're also a little bit different uh, than the ones used in relational databases, making some of these operations a lot faster in NoSQL databases, you know, down to the milliseconds to retrieve these values, and also a lot more flexible because we actually don't have these strongly defined schemas that we need to follow that we would have with relational databases. Uh, so what I want to talk about uh, today is actually Amazon DynamoDB, which is our fast and flexible NoSQL database service that allows applications to get this consistent single-digit millisecond latency really much at any scale. doesn't matter the throughput or the storage, etc. And a lot of our customers are using uh, DynamoDB to actually deliver the applications really at scale. So, for example, Snapchat is one of the uh, big DynamoDB user, Netflix, Samsung, we have Expedia, Airbnb. Or even, you know, I'm not sure if you know that customer. It's called Amazon. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> actually, even Amazon. And so uh, the reason I want to talk about it is because we actually had a few updates here that we announced at reInvent. And the first one is really a really cool thing. So if you ever work with customers globally, right, the mm-hmm. biggest challenge was always, how do I you know, build these applications across the globe and how do I synchronize my data? Database was always the tough part, Sure, right? it goes back to like multi-region deployments that we spoke about Ex- earlier. So exactly. we have that network glue, yeah. network connectivity, but obviously on the database layer, we need uh, uh, options as well, right? E- exactly, exactly. And so, you know, we had the abilities with DynamoDB streams and so on for people to create their own mechanisms to kind of replicate data across into different regions and then have the local users access their local data. Uh, so the services were all there and available. But again, you know, a lot of our customers have told us, can you make the, the click of a button, you know? <laughs> so what we did is we launched the uh, DynamoDB Global Tables, which now allows you to create tables that automatically replicate across multiple global AWS regions. And here's the cool part, with full support for multi-master rights only with a couple of clicks. That's pretty right? cool. I mean, doing multi-master across the globe is yeah. pretty hard uh, just on the best <laughs> of days, right? So to have that at a click of the button is pretty, uh, pretty good for our users. Exactly, exactly. And it now provides them the ability to really build this, this fast, massively scaled applications, even though you have that global user base uh, without having to match that replication process, right? And the other cool thing about that is it even allows your applications to now stay highly available even in the unlikely event 
or, or of an entire degradation of an entire region, right? And global tables also eliminates that difficult work of replicating that data between regions and resolving, for example, those update conflicts, right? Because that's the, the biggest challenge when you have this multi-master uh, uh, multi, uh, uh, right kind of uh, scenario here, right? And that allows our customers, again, focus on building your business logic, don't need to really worry about how to replicate that across. And the coolest part is you actually don't even need to make any change to your existing code, even if you want to use it. You just click it together, and now we start replicating to uh, the different regions that you choose, of course. And also, when you use those global tables, each item that will be replicated will actually include a timestamp attribute representing the time of that most re recent write, and also from which region that write actually originated. And then these updates are then prop propagated to other regions asynchronously, of course, via under the hood, DynamoDB streams and are typically completed within, you know, more or less uh, one second. And also to make sure that you can track that, uh, we actually provide you CloudWatch metrics uh, where there's a replication latency and a pending replication count uh, metric so that you can also see exactly how that's being replicated. It's pretty cool. It sounds like there's actually quite a lot of things, like you said, going on under the hood, but that's really, um, I guess you could say, hidden from the, the, the customer because exactly. they can just really focus on their applications and leveraging this multi-master configuration. Exactly, exactly. Click of a button, I choose a different region, and my data travels travels over there. That's awesome. And then the other thing, you know, in DynamoDB, a lot of our customers uh, have asked us, you know, can you make that a little bit easier for me to get a backup out of my DynamoDB yep. table, right? Uh, and, and that involved a little bit of effort uh, previously. And so we listened to our customers and said, okay, can we make that easier? And so we launched, uh, again, the DynamoDB backup and restore. So we have the on-demand backup capability that now allows you to create full backups of your DynamoDB tables. Uh, so that's good for, you know, data archival, or maybe even to help meet your corporate or, you know, governmental kind of regulatory uh, requirements that you have. So now you can back up tables from a few megabytes to pretty much a hundred of terabytes of data with absolutely no impact on performance or availability to your production applications. That is really That's cool, yeah. right? So you back up, doesn't matter how big that table is, you will not feel uh, that performance impact. And um, the processes that uh, we back, uh, back this up in seconds uh, is regardless, completely regardless of that size of that table, um, because we do that basically under the hood, on the site, you will not feel that impact at all. Now, those backups then are automatically encrypted, cataloged, easily made discoverable for you and retained until you explicitly delete them, right? And then the other thing is you can now execute that backup and also restore operations again with a single click of a button in the AWS Management Console or for me as a good developer mm -hmm. via an API call. Now, if you restore the table, uh, here the time depends a little bit on the size of your table. So that can range from, you know, let's say 30 minutes to a, a few hours, depending really on how large your table is. Now, we're also working on something else that we're going to release soon, which we call the point-in-time restore, which will also allow you to restore your data up to the minute for the past 35 days. And that's really cool to further protect, uh, protect your data really from, uh, uh, from loss of an application error. You know, we all uh, sometimes have accidentally written that piece of code where we delete the stuff that we shouldn't, that we shouldn't have. Now, that's for NoSQL databases, but you know, sometimes we have um, these very strong relationships within our database sets, right? That kind of look mm. like a graph. You know, think, for example, like, like Facebook, right? If you look at a friend, right? And then there will be multiple connections, like the pictures that he have, the comments that he has, the likes that he has on his post, et cetera. And that ties into, you know, other users that again have connections to the things they like and post, et cetera. And if you think about that, that all looks like a giant intermeshed graph. Yep. Well, and there, in those scenarios, it actually makes sense to use graph databases. So, Dean, why don't you tell us a, bit about, a little bit about uh, 
graph databases on AWS? Yeah, sure. So, you know, you, you spoke uh, in, in, a, in good detail about mm -hmm. uh, relational and, and NoSQL type mm -hmm. databases and you know, very powerful um, uh, storage and access type uh, systems um, for certain use cases. And like, like you mentioned, when you get to these situations where you have these highly sophisticated, complex uh, network uh, connections and interlaced mm -hmm. uh, meshed type setups for your applications, uh, relational and NoSQL databases probably isn't the best uh, right. solution uh, uh, to address that particular need. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, this is where we look at graph, graph uh, databases. Now, you mentioned uh, Facebook and, and connections in Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I also liken it to uh, LinkedIn, uh, so right. a professional network yep. in LinkedIn. And you know, when you go onto LinkedIn, then you can actually see um, other other members of the platform yep. and what degrees of separation they are from <laughs> uh, from you, whether first yeah. degree, so you know them um, directly, second degree, third degree, and so on. Um, but I also liken it to a, a game called uh, six, six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Oh, right. It's actually this game where um, you play with other people and you you identify a an actor or an uh, actress, mm -hmm. um, and then the game is to identify the relationship of that actor or actress to Kevin Bacon by okay. um, other actors or act actresses <laughs> they've actually worked with um, that it, uh, at the end would have actually worked with uh, with Kevin Bacon. Right. Now right. to set up all that, you actually need to run graph databases, <laughs> so basically in your mind. So many customers actually do run graph, graph databases uh, on AWS. Um, for example, we have FINRA, yep. um, Siemens, or even Thomson Routers. Yep. Um, we're continuously listening to our customers and trying to make their life easier. Remember to remove that undifferentiated True. heavy list lifting, in this case of having to deploy and manage graph databases. So we yep. actually announced a managed graph database service called Amazon Neptune. Right. So Amazon Neptune is a fast, reliable, fully managed graph database service. And so it makes it easier to build and run these applications that work with highly connected mm -hmm. uh, data sets. Uh, the core of Amazon Neptune is a purpose-built, high-performance graph database engine, and it's actually optimized for storing billions wow. of relationships and querying the graph with milliseconds of latency. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so uh, Amazon act, uh, Amazon Neptune actually supports two open standards for describing and querying your uh, graphs. Uh, first of all, there's uh, Apache uh, Tinkerpop 3. Mm -hmm. You've got to love mm -hmm. these names, right? Yeah. <laughs> Tinkering around. Tinkering yeah. around, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a, a, a Apache Tinkerpop 3 uh, style property graphs are queried, queried with Gremlin. Mm -hmm. Now, Gremlin is a graph traversal language where a query is a traversal made up of discrete steps right. following an edge to a node. Uh, your existing tools and clients that are designed to work with Tinkerpop uh, allow you to quickly get started with, uh, with Neptune. Right. right. Uh, the other open standard is uh, something called uh, Resource Description Framework, RDF, mm -hmm. queried with Spark, uh, SparkQL. It's like all these terms and uh, I'm still stuck on Tinkerpop. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, SparkQL is a uh, de declarative uh, language based on semantic web standards from uh, W3C. Right. Uh, it follows a subject, predicate, object model. Uh, specifically, Neptune supports the following standards. Now, this is going to be a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> so it's RDF 1.1, uh, SparkQL Query 1.1, uh, SparkQL Update 1.1, and SparkQL Protocol 1.1. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Great name, Sparkle yeah. Gremlin Tinker Pop. Awesome. Well, I got to love the graph data. <laughs> All in one service, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, Neptune uh, powers graph use cases such as recommendation engines, fraud detection, knowledge graphs, drug discovery, and network security. Right. Uh, Amazon Neptune, Neptune is now available in Preview in mm -hmm. US East. Uh, it's available on the R4 instance family and supports Apache Tinker. Tinkerpop version 3.3, and as mentioned before, RDF SparkQL 1.1 APIs. Right. Uh, now, most importantly, if you have an existing application that works with SparkQL or Tinkerpop, you should be able to start using Neptune by simply updating the endpoint the applications connect to. So I've uh, spoken quite a lot there about that as a service, uh, Ollie. What else is there? Yeah, well, another you know another great concept that I, I generally like to think of when it comes to databases, or actually I should say in general in AWS, uh, but now even with databases, is that idea of having complete serverless databases for relational databases mm. or 
large-scale data lakes, right? And so, you know, our listeners are probably familiar with Amazon Aurora. Amazon Aurora is our MySQL compatible or PostgreSQL compatible uh, database service, fully managed and automatically scales up up to 64 terabytes of database storage of a relational database, right? And when you create an Aurora database instance, you choose that desired instance size, and then we give you the option to increase that read throughput using read replicas. But mm-hmm. that makes it really easy to kind of build these clusters within uh, within Aurora. And this model works really, really well in an environment you know where your workload is very predictable, with bounds on the request rate and the processing requirement. Now, in some cases, the workloads now can be intermittent or unpredictable with bursts of requests that might spend, you know, let's say just a few minutes right. or hours per day uh, for, per week. You know, I think about things like, you know, flash sales or infrequent or one-time events, you know, or online gaming or reporting workloads, right? Like that hourly or daily kind of report, uh, you know, dev test or even just brand new applications. They all fit that kind of bill of, of, these, kind of these kind of patterns, sure. right? And, you know, if you, <clears throat> Aurora makes it really easy to kind of like deploy these clusters and so on. But, you know, arranging to just have the right amount of capacity can still be a bit of work, you know. Right. And, 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 and the reason we launched this new thing called Amazon Aurora Serverless is really the concept of saying, can we again take that pain away from our customers, right? And so Amazon Aurora Serverless is now an on-demand auto-scaling configuration for Amazon Aurora, where the database will automatically start up, shut down, and scale up or down the capacity completely based on the application's needs. So you don't need to manage any database instance or clusters anymore. So very useful for those you know, infrequent, intermittent, unpredictable workloads, because it automatically just starts up, scales around, depending on the application's usage, and, best part, shuts itself down wow, when not right. in use, yep. right? And and why is that useful? Well, of course, because you pay only on a per second basis for your database, right? And that billing is done using Aurora capacity units, which are each representing a combination of compute power and memory, and it is metered in those one-second increments, although with a one-minute minimum for each newly added resource. So. That's really cool, right? And yeah. per second database. Awesome. Yeah, so it's really providing customers a enterprise-grade relational database that is Aurora yeah. uh, for a wide variety of, of use cases, uh, like you mentioned, whether it's uh, steady-state consistent or if it's just that intermittent um, uh, type uh, type workloads or type requirements to that yeah. per second uh, basis. Exactly. Really reflecting what you can also do with uh, Amazon EC2 with per second uh, billing and also around um, serverless compute, which we'll talk a little bit about later. Exactly, well. exactly. So really, really cool. And I like your, your, uh, your point that you make about enterprise-grade database on a per second basis really cool and then you know the last thing that I would say um, although maybe not completely considered as a database but you know we have this Amazon S3 service which is obviously an object storage service that allows us uh, to provide virtually unlimited storage and so it's very useful to build out data lakes and that's where it kind of comes in uh, Mm. when we talk about the databases you know because you can actually use that kind of data lake on Amazon S3's similar to how you would talk to a database because you can run SQL queries on top of Amazon S3 with services like, you know, Amazon Athena or Amazon Redshift Spectrum, Mm. where you just type in a SQL query now, um, maybe straight in a flat file object data in your Amazon S3 bucket and get the results back, right? Like put those log files in, put those CSV files in, and now run a SQL query, connect the BI tool to it, and that's really cool. So we basically make a storage service a database, so to speak, roughly speaking. Yeah, it's really decoupling that storage from the actual um, uh, analytics or the compute, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and that's a a really powerful element when we, especially when we talk about big data analytics. Now, Mm. if you look at Amazon S3, it allows you uh, to, to have virtually unlimited storage, but on the individual object, you can store up all the way up to five terabytes in an individual object size. Now, that data in that object storage traditionally has probably been accessed as a whole entity. Meaning, let's say if you have, for example, an object that is a, a five gigabyte object and you want to retrieve it to run a query, you would need to get 
all those five gigabytes, right? Which is mm. the nature of object storage. Right. If you think about a log file, mm. that's five gigabyte strong, that it's timestamped, but I only want to get like a few minutes out of that log file. Uh, you know, do I really need to retrieve all these five gigabytes? Yeah. That, that's obviously not uh, not very efficient. And so, again, something our customers told us, you know, can you make that easier? Yeah. So what we came up with here is what we call Amazon S3 Select. And by using Amazon S3 Select, you can retrieve only the data that is needed by your application, and you can achieve drastic performance increases as such. Uh, and we actually observed in many cases as much as a 400% improvement in performance, right? So that enables these applications to only retrieve that subset of the data by using, well, guess what? Mm. SQL expression, SQL expressions, right? So, uh, you know, as an example, let's imagine you're a developer uh, at a large retailer mm -hmm. <laughs> and you need mm -hmm. to analyze the weekly sales data from a mm. single store, let's say, you know, but the data uh, uh, for all those 200 stores is saved in, let's say, like a new G-zipped, CSV file every day, right? Without S3 Select, you would need to download, decompress, and process the entire CSV to get the data you needed. Now with S3 Select, you can just use a simple SQL expression to return only the data from the store you're interested in instead of retrieving that entire object. Mm. And this means you're dealing with an order of magnitude less data, which improves the performance of that underlying applications, right? And on top of it, I said gzipped, right? right. Think about that, yeah. right? It's <laughs> compressed and you can still use it. Sure. Right? So it's not just CSV files. So that's really, really, really cool. Now, while uh, S3 Select is currently in preview, in preview it currently supports CSV and JSON with and without gzip compression. Um, and during the preview, objects that are encrypted at rest are currently not yet supported, but that's something we're looking into. Uh, we also get a similar feature with Amazon Glacier and not surprisingly, again, called Amazon Glacier Select. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I love these uh, new features of uh, you know, Amazon S3 and Amazon Glacier because I do believe we've had the ability to do what's called range gets, right? Um, with yeah. your data in uh, S3, but it is a binary reference. Uh, That's you, right. You know, basically, um, at that byte level where you indicate a start byte, end byte uh, range that you want to grab, but this is actually um, accessing your structured data um, directly on the uh, Amazon S3 and Amazon Glacier services. It's really yeah. cool. Very, very good point. So, Look, we've spoken about why customer could choose these databases and build their data lengths. Uh, we talked about uh, all these things. So let, let's, let's switch the gears a little bit and get a little bit into, into compute. So even with compute, there are many <laughs> choices, right? Sure is, absolutely. So we, we want to make uh, sure that our customers have the right services and tools available to fit their workload. So let's talk about the evolution of how we consume compute and, of course, back your information up with some real-world customer use cases, Dean? Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, of course, compute really forms the foundation of any application uh, deployment. Without compute, you can't really execute your code, right? Uh, but there's various ways that uh, developers would want to execute mm -hmm. um, uh, the code. Um, so when we talk about the ability to execute code in the cloud, you can think of it as being across three key domains. Uh, virtual server hosting, for example, with Amazon EC2. Um, as our listeners know, it's a service where you can run your standard Linux or Windows operating systems, and you really have the flexibility to deploy whatever applications you like across mm -hmm. those um, uh, platforms. Mm -hmm. uh, we then have containers, and containers really allow you to run your stateless or stateful applications packaged as containers um, um, and used, for example, with services like Amazon mm -hmm. ECS, uh, where you can easily run uh, these applications on a managed cluster of Amazon EC2 instances. Mm -hmm. Now, Amazon ECS eliminates the need for you to install, operate, and scale your own cluster management uh, software. Yep. And then finally, the third way to really execute your code um, on AWS is the ability to run event-initiated stateless applications that need quick response times. And of course, uh, the a service that provides this is AWS Lambda. Yep. Yeah. So let, maybe I'll go a little bit deeper on the first way to execute okay. your code. So virtual server hosting, Ollie. Now, as our listeners would know, the Amazon EC2 service was actually one of the original services we launched way back in 2006. Uh, <laughs> way back, time, uh, years ago. <laughs> uh, 
So we've uh, continued to uh, uh, enhance and iterate on the service um, ever since. And many of our other services are actually based on the Amazon EC2 uh, uh, platform. Now, Amazon EC2 provides a lot of flexibility to our users in terms of what applications they want to run on AWS. But we wanted to continue to provide choice to our users. And so at reInvent, we actually announced several new instance types, Mm -hmm. increasing the number of um, instance uh, families mm-hmm. that our users can actually um, leverage for the different um, for a different work uh, workloads. Um, now, customers might want to use certain instance types that are designed for general purpose, but we also have instance types that are designed specifically for certain workloads, for example, areas of storage optimization, uh, high-performance computing, mm-hmm. and even in deep learning right. uh, type scenarios. Now, one of the announcements that really got me excited as an infrastructure guy um, <laughs> is that we actually announced uh, what, what is actually an, another EC2 instance type, but it's something called Amazon EC2 bare metal instances. Right. Now, actually, as the name suggests, it's the ability for customers to actually leverage uh, um, or, or provide their applications with direct access to the processor and memory of the underlying server. There's actually right. no hypervisor involved. Right. Now, these instances are ideal for workloads that require access to hard, hardware feature sets. So, for example, maybe Intel VTX. Right. Um, or for applications that need to run in non-virtualized environments for license, licensing or support requirements. Now, as I mentioned, this type of instance is just like your other instance types. Right. Accessible over an API um, and uh, a fully fledged member, uh, fully fledged, and therefore fully fledged members of the EC2 family that can take advantage of elastic load balancing, auto scaling, auto recovery, and so on. Ah, that's very cool. Right there. And uh, again, I think it's, it's one of those good elements of, you know, listening to our customers, see again where we can, where we can make those differences in the, uh, now you get your bare metal instances, Steen, that you can yep. that you can play with. But I think <laughs> it's a very important point that you're making around the fact that, you know, it's it's really just like another EC2, so to speak, mm. with having all these API accesses. Uh, so that's 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 really cool. Now, having said that, let me uh, spend a little bit of time on containers. So. Yep. Containers are a really powerful way for developers to develop, then they package and then deploy applications in that container. And we have many customers using, for example, Amazon ECS for their container management. Uh, So for example, we have customers like Coursera, who's one of the world's largest provider of massive open online classes with more than 150 university partners from 29 countries and more than 25 million registered students. And they use Amazon ECS to make the deployments more flexible and streamlined. It's build process by cutting build times by 83%, and they're able to run at three to 500 builds mm. each day. So that's right. really cool. And at reInvent uh, 2017, so last year, we announced two new services in the space to complement Amazon ECS. Right. So the first one was AWS Fargate that takes the requirement of having to manage you know, Amazon EC2 clusters while still having all the benefits of container technology. Right. You know? yeah. so, so to kind of put it simply, Fargate is like EC2, but instead of giving you a virtual machine, mm-hmm. you kind of get a container, right? Right, right? It's a technology that allows you to use these containers as a fundamental compute primitive without having to manage those underlying instances, right? Just focus on the container, mm. right? And so all you need to do is build your container image specify the CPU and memory requirements that you want to have, define you know, your networking and IAM policies that you want to have, and launch. Right. right? Yep. And so developers can now focus on building, packaging, deploying the applications without the need to worry about provisioning or managing any on the, uh, of the underlying server capacity or clusters or anything yep. to run the container. Right. You know? I always like to to refer to it a little bit jokingly as the lambda for containers. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. And it really all relates back to those three key words, undifferentiated heavy lifting. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, still on, on, on staying a little bit on the theme of those containers. Though. We have a lot of customers also who, who, who said, you know, we run Kubernetes on AWS. And actually, according to the Cloud Native Compute Foundation, of which AWS, by the way, is a member of, over 63% of Kubernetes workloads globally run on AWS. So due to customer feedback, which is how we prioritize, as I mentioned, Mm. and develop and release our services, we also announced the Amazon Elastic Container Service for 
Kubernetes, right? right? And in short, we call that Amazon EKS. So Amazon EKS is a fully managed service that makes it easy for you to use Kubernetes on AWS without having to, you know, be an expert in managing Kubernetes clusters. And these are these are the very few things that we think developers will really like about this service. So, you know, first, Amazon EKS runs the upstream version of the open source Kubernetes software. Mm. So you can use all the existing plugins and tooling from the Kubernetes community. Now, applications running on Amazon EKS are fully compatible with applications running on any standard Kubernetes environment. So that could be, you know, on your on-premise data centers or even the public cloud. Now, this means that you can also easily migrate your Kubernetes applications to Amazon EKS with right. zero code changes or zero, you know, any, any changes that you want to make. Now, mm -hmm. uh, second, Amazon EKS automatically runs uh, Kubernetes with three masters across three availability zones to protect against a single point of failure. Right. And this, this multi-AZ architecture now delivers you know, the resiliency that you require even against the loss of an entire availability zone. So that, oh, that, that yeah, really right. makes it highly available. Mm. And then finally, also Amazon EKS automatically detects and replaces unhealthy masters, right? and it provides also automated version upgrades and patching for those masters. Hence why it's managed right? service. Managed yeah. service. Mm. Lastly also, it's integrated with a lot of other key AWS features, which is important, mm -hmm. such as, for example, the elastic load balancer, of course, so that we can do proper load distribution. Uh, obviously, IAM for authentication, Amazon VPC, so we can have isolation, AWS private link for that private network access, and of course, AWS CloudTrail for logging, right? So that's lots cool. of new ways to play with containers, containers. on AWS. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and that's, that's, that's really great uh, summary there of, uh, you know, some of the things that we are doing in the container space for our, our customers. And, you know, it really is a good indication that Amazon EKS service you just spoke about um, of where we've taken that customer feedback. We saw that customers were mm -hmm. running um, a large uh, number of Kubernetes workloads on, on AWS and, you know, pr uh, have now provided this managed service so cu customers can focus on develop developing the applications for the container rather than managing the containers um, themselves. Yep. Um, so uh, I spoke about um, you know really there being three categories of uh, um, or three areas of, of compute. We've spoken about um, the first two with virtual server hosting and also with container technology. Now the third category um, is of course serverless, right. uh, another uh, very common and popular um, uh, domain in, in in the space. Now. The name can be a little bit misleading, uh, serverless. <laughs> um, the first thing to know that there is actually still servers. Uh, no involved. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but from a user or a developer perspective, there is actually no OS to manage and you can purely deploy and execute your code or application. You can kind of think of it like functions as a service. Right. Um, now, our uh, offering, our service that we um, uh, provide to our users is, of course, Amazon Lambda in the area of serverless. Mm -hmm. um, and Amazon Lambda really is at the core of server any serverless design on uh, AWS. And we have customers like Netflix um, who are actually planning to use uh, AWS Lambda to build rule-based self-managing infrastructure uh, and replace inefficient processes to reduce the rate of errors and save uh, valuable time. Right. They're actually looking at using AWS Lambda to, um, uh, to have event-based triggers to help automate the encoding process of media files, nice. the validation of backup completions and instance deployments at scale, and of course, the monitoring of AWS resources used by the uh, organization. Yeah, yeah, like really embracing that event-driven architecture, triggering the Lambda functions when something happens. Yeah, right? absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And you know, after the launch of AWS uh, Lambda, we actually followed up with the serverless application model, or SAM for short. And so SAM really simplifies the process of deploying and managing serverless applications mm -hmm. on AWS. 
Um, at reInvent, we also um, published a uh, or, or proposed a um, serverless reference architecture um, uh, for for web apps, uh, mobile backends, image recognition and processing, real time file processing, IoT, MapReduce, right. real time uh, stream processing. So all of these reference architectures that relate to serverless nice. um, to design, nice. really uh, so making it easy to kind of get started and click things together. Exactly right. Yeah. right. Exactly. And uh, it's, it's it's interesting you mentioned about making it easier to get started <laughs> because um, we do want to make things um, as easy as possible for our customers. Um, and so, uh, especially when it comes to discovering and deploying serverless apps, right. um, we want to strengthen the open source community around Lambda, uh, SAM mm -hmm. and serverless apps with room for everyone to share, participate and benefit. So we actually announced at reInvent the AWS serverless application repository. It's essentially a platform which is designed for producers of software and consumers of serverless apps. It's actually an AWS console component which supports publishing, discovery, and deployment of these applications. Now, you mm -hmm. can think of producers like developers, ISVs, SaaS nice. providers, and mm -hmm. AWS partners. Um, and so these um, producers can easily publish to the repository. Um, apps must be in SAM format, accompanied by an SPDX license identifier, with options to share globally uh, for all AWS customers or privately with access controls for individuals and teams. Nice. And the source code and other application components can be stored in GitHub or another source code repository and then included via mm -hmm. reference, again, mm -hmm. with control oversharing. Yeah, makes sense. Um, Another feature we added to AWS Lambda is you can actually now use um, AWS Code Deploy to deploy your AWS Lambda functions. Mm -hmm. uh, so Code Deploy helps you automate the testing, rollout, and if necessary, rollback of these Lambda functions. Nice. And this will help you reduce risks associated with updating Lambda functions. Now these types of features make sure that every AWS customer can move ahead into the serverless future. <laughs> <laughs> so, nice. Ollie, um, can you maybe just quickly take us through these compute services as they are priced for our users. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, great overview that, that, that you provided here. Um, so from a cost perspective, Amazon EC2 and Amazon ECS usage are built on a one second increment with a minimum of 60 seconds, so per second kind of billing. So you can focus on improving your applications instead of maximizing that usage to the hour. So that's cool. Mm. Uh, that's something we announced last year. Uh, especially also, you know, if you manage instances running for these irregular periods of time, such as dev test, data processing, analytics, batch processing, gaming applications, etc. Now, AWS Lambda lets you run that code without provisioning or managing those servers, and you pay only for the compute time, you know, the execution time right. that you consume. There's no charge when your code is not running. So that's cool. Mm. And with AWS Lambda, you can run your code for virtually any type of application or backend service, all with without or zero administration. And we charge it in 100 millisecond right. execution time increments. So you just upload your code and Lambda takes care of everything required to run and scale your code with high availability. Yeah. Great. So, look, Dean, I think uh, uh, we're slowly reaching <laughs> our end of our Tech Chat I podcast so. here yeah. today. Uh, we talked a lot about the different database uh, services that are available, some of these cool new services that we launched, mm -hmm. and uh, we had a good overview here over these compute services that are available. Uh, so lots of flexibility for our customers to build the applications effectively. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, never have any doubt to reach out to us if you want to get some help from our solutions architects uh, to make sure you build your applications correctly, choose the right services. And this is all for today's Tech Chat. Next time we'll focus a little bit more on AI and analytics. Very, thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.